Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn from Focus Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you are joining us, thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to check out all the content we put out on the internet. Go to focuscompounding.com to get investment write-ups from Jeff. Follow me on Twitter at, at @focuscompound uh, to get everything that we put out into uh, the investing universe. And check out our Invest With Us tab at focuscompounding.com if you're interested in learning more about our money management services. And of course, if you are listening to this on YouTube or Spotify or wherever else you listen to podcasts, uh, be sure to hit that subscribe button so you're notified every single time we upload a podcast. Uh, so in today's podcast, we are going to, I guess I should say, finish what I wanted to talk about last week, which is settled industries. Um, but the best part about the podcast is sometimes people write in questions and mm -hmm. we dedicate a full podcast to talking about the topic. And I thought it was great. Uh, so to be able to do that in the future, you can email me at andrewredfocuscompounding.com. Every single week, we will pull one question and spend some time going over it for the podcast. So before we jump into our topic, we can hit on the markets. As we sit here, June 14th, 2022, the S&P 500 is down 21%. Um, I think when we recorded last week, the market was down about 13 to 14%. The biggest jump in yields in quite some time, the 10-year yield is at 3.343%. Put up the 30-year fixed-rate mortgage because that's just been a crazy jump uh, since our last podcast and certainly on the year. That's 6.13% uh, for a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage. Um, crude oil, $122 a barrel, and natural gas, $7.23. Um, uh, last week, we had a... Inflation print of 8.6% for May, um, which was, uh, it was an 8.6% year-over-year number growth, which is not what the market wanted to see, and yields immediately started to run. The market started to sell off. And then yesterday, we got a leak. Is this a leak? Is this just speculation? I mean, you never know how these things go. Uh, saying that the Fed is likely to consider a 75 basis point percentage rate hike this week at the Fed funds meeting or for the Fed funds rate uh, at the Fed meeting. So a lot has happened in the markets since our last weekly podcast. What are you thinking, Jeff? Any uh, Anything to uh, take home from all of this? Not really. So this came out on uh, Friday and then, you know, when we're uh, recording this, that's basically all that's changed is that you had an inflation report and then you had uh, the market decline, yields went up, and uh, then you had this thing where the Fed said they're maybe going to raise it by more. Presumably, you, they told people to try to warn them that they're going to do it. Isn't more. it funny? So like when we read the trillion dollar triage. none of it is, uh, not that I saw, no reports cite any sources at all. No, and Steve so Leisman they were told that we're going to do this, and you can't say who told you. Correct. Steve Leisman, his sources, and I'm putting sources in quotes, also confirmed that they are going to consider 75 basis points. But from reading Trillion Dollar Triage, it was yeah. interesting to see sort of the behind the scenes of how the Fed thinks and how they um, like to communicate potentially what they're going to do beforehand. Mm -hmm. So then it starts to get priced into the market. And so there's not such a huge shock um, right. uh, to everybody else. I mean, they definitely take that shock value into consideration. It seems like in modern days when uh, 
thinking about how they're going to communicate information. I mean, I think even in Trillion Dollar Triage, which is a book that we both have read, Buffett mm-hmm. has recommended it. We recommend it to everybody listening to read it. Um, Powell even has a Twitter. So he is seeing what, you know, people are communicating on Twitter and what their thoughts are because Twitter, Fintuit in particular, has become, um, I guess, popular if Jay Powell's on there, right? With his own burner. Yeah, you can see from the minutes that they get um, briefed on what the the uh, Fed staff thinks that the market thinks the um, expectations are. So they are t- they talk about the expectations of what it, whether it would surprise the market or not, too. Um, but, you know, that's all recent. If you go back 20 years or more, uh, that was not the case. Actually, when, um, you know, when we talk about Volcker and all that stuff, um, they didn't even, not only did they not have a press release normally, I mean, not press conference normally, um, they actually didn't even, you just had to assume what the uh, Fed funds rate was um, by what their behavior was. They didn't actually announce it all the way back then, so... The actual trading behavior is what determined whether they figured out what had happened. Paulo has even talked about in press conferences how giving their guidance to the market or talking about these things he thinks could be like a new modern way of doing, um, you know, controlling interest rates I think or Bernanke the narrative. That. Yeah, I read Bernanke's book recently. I don't, we'll see. I think central banks may abandon that. I think it didn't work out. They uh, was lots of research on stuff, and they thought it would work. And Bernanke was a big proponent of it, but I think that that's probably what caused them to have such a slow reaction. There's a feeling that they had to communicate ahead of time, the order in which they were going to do things. All of that may have really contributed to a really slow reaction to inflation. Do you think the Fed internally actually have felt that inflation was going to be an issue, but they just didn't want to talk about it because inflation is a self fulfilling thing? I mean, how can they have been? so wrong on inflation being transitory to the narrative change of, well, inflation is going to be hot, but it's going to simmer down a little bit to now, oh, inflation is a real issue. It's interesting. I read a couple. So, you know, the Bernanke book is finished now. Is it the new book? The new book. Okay. It's finished now, but obviously he wrote most of it before. And so it's way out of line with what's happening now. It it seems like it's talking about as if it's transitory. Mostly it spends a lot of time talking about what do we do in a world where inflation is too low. Uh, and so that was interesting. And also I read a book by, what is it, Yardeni? Is Ed Yardeni? Is that he? Yeah. The one who forecasts, does market forecasting and stuff. He appears on shows all the time. Um, and that was also interesting in the same thing with him and in, uh, like you said, with the Charlie Dollar Triage and with the Bernanke book, all of them was interesting reading about what they thought in 2017, where inflation, what they felt was low, even though they knew the labor market was tighter from about 2017 through 2019, um, was tighter than they thought was possible without having inflation. So they all thought that inflate that the market in nor- that in previous cycles, the, uh, you should have had more inflation by this point, but they kind of ignored the fact that the that the market was tight. And I think there's a lot of different reasons for that. I was going to say, so what are your thoughts on that? So they've been trying to, or I guess I should say, they've had interest rates pretty low for some time and they we did not have any meaningful spike in inflation. Yeah. Why are we having the spike that we're having now? I mean, is it purely from like the supply chain? You had China shut down. You had all of these confluence of factors that 
affected the supply side of things. I mean, do you think that is mainly what's driving all of this? I have a different opinion than everybody else. I think the Fed thought that, and economists thought that inflation was low and stable when the only evidence is that it's stable. It just happened to be low, you know? Um, I think there's strong evidence that there's was less volatility. Um, so I think everyone leaving jobs and going to other jobs and stuff is mainly what caused it. Um, I thought that's about Japan for a while, for instance. I think the biggest issue is that they have such little turnover in like business creation, destruction, or the early part of the labor force. So like even the population growth rate shrinking exaggerates, you know, the growth in the um, labor, uh, young people entering the workforce. So I think that those sorts of things cause a lot, can cause a lot of inflation uh, or a lot of price changes. And that if a lot of people, if there's not a lot of change, then prices end up being stickier. And I think that's probably what happened. So I don't think there's particularly a lot of reason why. So like these shocks, if any sort of shock could have caused something like this. Um, there have been pandemics before in history and they were highly inflationary. Like extreme, some of the most highest inflation in history followed pandemics. The Roman Empire had a pandemic followed by inflation that lasted for hundreds of years. Um, they went from inflation about 1% a year for 100 years to 5% a year for the next 200 years. Um, and obviously very unstable inflation. And uh, in medieval Europe, same thing happened. Pandemic followed by a lot of inflation. Uh, there's a lot of different reasons why it might, that might have happened. But the biggest thing is it disrupts a lot of relationships, changes a lot of things in the economy. So I think that's the big thing. Um, and that inflation in other periods has been associated with that too. So the biggest one is war and peace, right? So that's where we see the biggest inflation and deflation. And we're familiar with that. And another one of these shocks that people talk about. But more than that, it changes a lot of things inside the economy. So I think a lot of volatility helps create the possibility for high inflation or deflation. And I think that a low level of volatility, a low level of change makes it more likely that you'll have um, stickier prices. Have you seen the price of Bitcoin since, uh, or I guess as of recent, I mean, it was down 20% the other day. So it's interesting. I mean, these basically every speculative part of the market has gotten hit. And even other parts of the market that you wouldn't consider to be speculative as well has got hit as well. I mean, are you seeing the current environment as buying opportunities to put cash to work if you have dry powder? Um, kind of take us through like what your thought process is. Um, I mean, we're officially in a bear market now. Yeah. <laughs> as officially. of, you know, the other day. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I think the problem that we, I, I'd say we have mostly is that I like the things that we own better than most of the things we could buy. So that's a major problem. Um, I'd be happy to own more liquid things. I'd even be willing to own slightly larger things. And um, I'd be willing to diversify more into different sorts of industries. Um, but uh, they're generally not as attractive. Not as attractive on price or, or other things as the, well, the stuff that we own. So that's the biggest problem. I mean, you can see that, and we joked about this before, but in terms of um, price multiples. So we've had continually lower multiples on things that we own and some things that we might consider buying as compared to the market because both you've had high earnings growth 
and then less price. So less price appreciation versus earnings growth. That's not as true in some other um, parts of the market. Mm -hmm. But of course that counts on, I mean, it doesn't count necessarily. I'm using trailing numbers, but uh, that depends on what people think a year ahead. So obviously there's concern that that earnings will be down over the next year. Um, what about companies like Berkshire that have sold off in this pullback as well? I mean, uh, a company like that that you know well, and they follow for a long time would be down a lot. Uh huh. Yeah. So, got it. Um, <laughs> I mean, on the other hand, they have lots of float. Obviously, they could own. Uh, I mean, you know, they they have huge amounts of money in cash equivalents and stuff, and those will yield what? Yeah, three to four percent at the top of the cycle, as opposed to. Uh, literally zero. Is, is it funny that it seems like Buffett always has the last laugh in mm -hmm. these manias? How now here he is sitting on over 100 billion in cash or close to it or whatever the enormous number is, and markets are selling off, and he has a huge cash pile that mm -hmm. presumably he will be able to put to work. Yeah, it's very similar to the dot com where he completely avoided it, and he's pretty much completely avoided. Any of those things, I guess some of the other managers there have missed a little bit and, you know, you got your snowflake and things like that, but basically they're not in any of that. So, so I wanted to just quickly comment on Coinbase or just bring it up because we actually just did a podcast talking it, about yeah. Coinbase and how they expanded their employees and how that was something that caught your eye when you recently read their 10K and Brian Armstrong, who is the founder and CEO he said, today I share that I've made the difficult decision to reduce the size of our team at Coinbase by about 18%. The barter market downturn means that we need to be more mindful of costs as we head into a potential recession. We also grew quite quickly over the past two years and have begun to operate less efficiently at our new size. It will take us some time to adjust to this new scale before growing again. And then they had a PR from that as well. So I was just curious if he actually watches Focus Compounding because I think that's exactly what we talked about a uh, few weeks ago mm -hmm. yeah it's a huge increase in the employees that just shows how hard it is sometimes to manage through growth and everything yeah. like that you know um more on that because i think it's a great question when you have layoffs at these companies or these high-tech companies have had their stock sell off tremendously. We've talked a little bit about stock-based compensation, but somebody wrote in and asked, as you know, many software and tech companies issue large stock-based compensation schemes to reward their employees increased loyalty. Over the past year, stock-based comp has been very cheap, in quotes, for the companies since their stock prices have been very high and dilution for owners has been minimal. What happens when the stock prices of these companies normalize, as has already happened in some cases? Do they keep the stock-based comp scheme the same, but issue more stock to compensate for the lower share price and therefore dilute owners more? Question mark. Do they start to pay their employees in cash and in turn worsen their margins? Question mark. Overall, I'm trying to understand what the economics and the margin profile of these companies will be if the stock-based comp option is not as lucrative question mark is there a risk their employees which in this case is their main asset leave to other industries question mark so i thought it'd be interesting mm -hmm. to loop those in with coinbase because i'm sure a lot of people were compensated via stock-based comp and what happens now when your stock price has gone down you're gonna lay off a bunch of employees how would you think about it um 
I think that the main thing is the employees make less money. As in they pay them less cash. They can't use cash. cash because cash, these companies generally aren't generating a lot of cash. Capital markets aren't really open to raising money. Um, so when you have tight credit conditions and things like that, uh, then you can't really raise, uh, you can't get cash into uh, companies that are speculative that are losing money right now, but are going to make a lot of money in the future. Now, Coinbase made a lot of money, but many of these companies have not. Um, so you can't use cash. Um, you have to use stock. And then I think that the stock is just worth a lot less. You can't obviously dilute people a lot more and have your stock stay up. Um, so I just think that you end up issuing a lot less valuable stock and uh, employees make a lot less money. So basically they give less stock-based comp to their employees to compensate them. So do you think that's like a, an issue? Less dollar value, yeah. Yeah, less mm -hmm. dollar value. And then he asked, I mean, do you think there's a risk to their employees that they could leave to other industries? I mean, I no. guess you can make that. No? So you don't believe it? Given their education and things like that. I mean, we have some information on this. I don't think people in the United States will move to other industries, even if they pay very well. Um, I mean, where are they going to go in like a moment like this, too, if they work in tech? I mean, most tech companies are getting hurt right now. Yeah. No, I think like, you know, if you're in actual software stuff, yeah, I think they're getting rid of people. Um, that seems to be the only area of the workforce that's really, that's really contracting. If you have like a degree in computer science or something, then your job's at risk. But the other parts of the economy, not so much. I mean, we've seen that. All what companies aren't getting rid of people. Um, some have just stopped hiring. But, you know, so there are like, I guess, you know, I mean, yeah, there are a few that we've heard from that just are not growing as much, but we've heard about a lot that are actually not going to hire as many people as they thought or going to um, fire people. So I think, you know, um, <laughs> I think if you can um, do manual labor and stuff right now, I think your future is a little brighter than if you have a degree in computer stuff for the next few years. Yeah, it sounds like he's asking this because he said, uh, do they keep the stock-based comp scheme the same but issue more stock to compensate for the lower share price and therefore dilute owners more? Do they start to pay their employees in cash and in turn worsen their margins? Maybe this is like almost like a modeling question on typically what happens. So your answer is that they just typically will stop paying them as much. Yeah. In fact, I wrote something about this for Focus Compounding. We'll see if it goes up soon. Um, one of the reasons I don't like stock-based compensation is I think it's a way to transfer much more wealth to employees than otherwise would be the case from owners. I don't think that if paid in cash, um, it would ever be tolerated. It's not just an issue of tax policy of the government and stuff about rules on that. I literally think that people would not accept payments that high. Um, like you had this, what, uh, um, an executive from Facebook leave recently. And she- Cheryl Sandberg. Yeah. And if you do the math, she probably received something like an average of $100 million a year during the time that she was there. Um, there's no way that you'd be paid $100 million a year in cash. It'd be hard to be paid $30 million a year in cash. Um, there'd be a real, uh, a lot of people getting upset about that. Do you think that's because it would run through their the income statement so people would see it as actually being an expense? No, I think it's just, there's no way to argue about it. You received $100 million in cash. I mean, other countries at other times have put a lot of it in perks instead of cash i think moving away from cash is the you can pay people a lot more if you don't do it in cash mm -hmm. the hardest thing is if you do it in cash 
Um, that's also true just even people estimating their own income. If you ask people what's your income, they have very good estimates of what their cash income is. They don't have good estimates if you give them other things. And I don't think that's just people like trying to understate their income for some reason. I think that literally it's very easy to understand what cash is and what you've been paid. And if you receive other sorts of benefits, it's not so easy. Um, stock has, you can argue that it's performance based that they have, but of course you can pay out cash and large performance bonuses. Um, so I just, I think that you, you generally make less money if you don't have, um, um, it, it, you know, if there's more backlash against that from owners. So if you were running a company, what would you do then? What would your policy be? If you were head of the compensation committee and you made all these decisions? Only, uh, I, well, I mean, it, it depends on what they're doing and how long you want them to stay there and all that. But large performance, uh, um, payments and cash bonuses um, tied to probably uh, some target that they're supposed to hit. I also think that very large bonuses are counterproductive. So um, I don't think that paying... If you pay someone $100 million a year, you make it more likely to leave. Now, you might want them to leave sometimes. This might help with this. So a lot of these people have made enough money that they, if they don't want the job anymore, they can leave. But if you don't want people to leave, then you have to avoid paying them a lot of money to make them rich. It's one of the big dangers of people running companies that they get rich. And if they get rich, then they might leave. Um, so, but like for rank and file employees and stuff, uh, Cash bonus tied to a specific thing and maybe about 20% of their salary or something. Mm -hmm. yeah. But how do you attract the right type of employee if you don't want to pay them a lot because you don't want them to get too rich? I mean, how do you sort of balance that double-edged sword? Because how do you incentivize them to want to think like an owner and think about the long term? I mean, do you think cash compensation could influence more short-term thinking? Or is it just really however you set it up from the onset? Yeah, I think that the reason that they give stock compensation is to make it more similar to people who founded the company and it's after the period where they could realistically get equity in the company. So it's a method of doing it that's similar to people who are early hires. But uh, I, I'm skeptical of how much it incentivizes people and stuff. Mm -hmm. I, I'm a little... Yeah, I'm, I'm more skeptical than, than most people I think about um, how much it incentivizes people, how powerful incentives are, purely cash incentives. I'm not sure that cash incentives, I mean, purely financial incentives. I'm not sure they're the most important thing. I think there are other factors. And I think once they exceed a certain level, they're not really that helpful. So, um, I mean... What we're talking about here is to a significant extent, just like a, it's like a lottery ticket. It's just the possibility that you can make a lot of money if things work out of the company. I also don't know how tied it is to your own performance. Um, I think it's easier to have yeah, bonuses that are tied directly to people's performance and to have some people in the company make a lot of money even when other people don't make any. I think that's closer to how Berkshire does it. Berkshire probably pays very large cash bonuses or cash mm -hmm. compensation. And it's probably tied entirely to the performance of the business versus targets that Buffett has in his head. Um, and I don't think that just because one business makes a lot of money, another one will necessarily get paid a lot uh, the, out of another part of it. So, 
And then it's an issue when if you were issuing or giving stock-based comp to companies that inflated prices and then the tide goes out, then what do employees do? How do they feel? Um, it makes it much more challenging, don't you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's hard to know how much you should be compensating people. I think it's very hard to evaluate the how productive these employees are. And I think it's very hard to know how expensive the the equity that you're giving people is mm-hmm. too. So I think that's tough. And, you know, um, I really just look at it from an investor perspective as how much they might uh, dilute over time, mm-hmm. you know, the percentage that it might happen. And so I just, it's a tendency to dilute or not to dilute. Um, but in theory, it could pay off a lot for companies that are in these kinds of industries. We just don't invest in these kinds of industries that do. Mm-hmm. So we could talk about our topic today, and that is settled industries. We mm-hmm. get a lot of questions about how you think about the competitive landscape. At an industry, we've spoken a lot about how we like industries that are settled and even slow growth is something that you find interesting. So I'm kind of curious if you could first just give a um, your thoughts on like, what are you typically looking for in the industry when you're going to invest in a company? What are some things that you originally think about or that you look for? What does a settled industry look like to Jeff? Um, mainly what I'm looking for is that a company... Uh, it's hard for someone to, to cause a lot of harm to a company in it. As Buffett said that before, and that's kind of the test that I use. It's not so much a moat or something like that exactly. Um, it's not having a really strong position necessarily in it. It's how much damage can someone else do to you. If you can't have a lot of dumb damage done to you by a rival, uh, then I'm a lot more interested. Um, so, for instance, Uber and Lyft have huge market share in their industry and all sorts of advantages versus a new entrant and all that, it doesn't really matter because they're capable of doing a lot of damage to each other. And so it becomes purely a game of guessing what the strategy of each one is, how long they can last, and how much damage they can do to each other. Um, that's less true in some other industries, right? So car insurance or something, in theory, that could happen. But in practice, because of the behavior of the companies, but also because of capital requirements and things like that, um, it can't last very long. So, so regulatory of, reasons yeah. in that so situation? While there, where there may be a situation where you have a relative advantage versus another company and you lose money in a given year, your combined ratio is more than 100, they lose even more, but you lose some even though you're the, the leader. Um, that can't last for very long because the capital levels get depleted. They slow down how much they're writing. They raise the prices, all those sorts of things. So um, whereas... So you have something that lasts a year instead of 10 years or something in another industry. Mm-hmm. If you were looking at this chart, would you say you would be interested in the slow to no growth, mature part of the industry? And I thought this was just an interesting, like you have the slow, you have the beginning stages right here. Prices are high, competition is limited, large investment required, high risk of failure. Um, so if you want to like call it like the angel phase or mm-hmm. beginning venture capital, then you get the wrap. Uh, the rapid pace, you could call that venture capital, you get growth, prices start to fall, competition is limited. Um, and then you start to get the shakeout phase, I guess you could say when a bunch of competition starts to uh, come in into the industry as it labeled as intense, uh, you're focusing on surviving, you're maybe now instead of focusing on adjusted EBITDA, uh, to quote one of the companies you just talk about it's all about free cash flow mm-hmm. um, the industry starts to consolidate more and then we enter this slow to no growth um, phase of the life cycle where the industry is much more settled it's much more mature there's consolidation as you said about how much can somebody hurt you um, you know high barriers to entry 
and it's all about you know like market share and stuff like that um if you had to look at this i mean would you typically put yourself in the slow to no growth i mean we talk about how you like slow growth and how slow profitable growth could be a great thing you've also written about how declining industries in general could be great because that means declining competition so kind of take me through how you typically think about it well the best would be rapid growth or somewhat rapid not as rapid as you know people who uh, uh, more rapid than the economy we we invest in things that are growing faster than the economy overall grows but not some of the growth things that other people look at um a company like that that's growing strongly but uh the industry itself is not growing very fast so that's usually desirable uh definitely low growth in the number of customers don't like to see a lot of new startups to some extent definitely don't like to see a lot of new customers so what does that mean so customers, customers in like the most the dangerous thing in any industry I, I i mean i think the most dangerous thing in any industry is the possibility that your pool of customers will grow each year I think that creates the worst economics because the customers will because of that type of industry well, that means the customer will have a lot of different options to choose from no it's what i was just talking about with um uh what happened with inflation right so one thing that you know in it from a macro sense is that by having lots of people leave jobs and then try to go find other jobs and stuff it allowed the possibility that it disrupted a lot of established relationships and allowed the possibility that there suddenly be increases in prices decreases in prices all sorts of changes right mm -hmm. Um, if you don't have a lot of, taking customers from each other is not very e easy in many industries. However, getting completely new customers is a lot more easy. So take car insurance, right? Um, for a while, Geico and Progressive have been the leaders in truly new drivers, right? Together, they, they account for probably a majority of the industry in some years. Uh, they're gaining overall market shares really slow. Because they're not taking a lot of really old drivers and stuff. People who are already with Allstate and State Farm are not switching over to Geico and Progressive. Uh, but a truly new driver would be a possibility. So if if cars hadn't been invented and we suddenly invented cars and it was doubling every year how many drivers were on the road, uh, the industry would be a lot more uh, difficult, the competition there. Uh, but trying to take customers that are already in a relationship with someone else I think is a lot more difficult. And so it helps insulate all the companies in the industry and that's why you see these companies have very high retention rates yeah because because they look they're looking at their own self-interest and they're thinking this is stupid to try to do this um if you're coke and pepsi why do you not try really hard to take customers from the other uh because you know how hard it is to do it's not like coke is a preferred brand overall to pepsi by everyone or something um dr pepper Right, Coke and Pepsi may be way preferred brands, but if they're going to come into places like where we are now recording this and try to take share from Dr Pepper, it's it's a, a lot of people are more loyal to that brand than to either of those, and so it's not a good way to spend your money. So that, that's what I mean about the harm that they could do to each other. Most of those companies would understand that it doesn't make a lot of sense to try to take that relationship, so don't try to do it. But if they see a new category right a new customer that they think they can take then there's a lot of attempt to um take that customer and then it becomes a problem i think so the trend in airlines has certainly been consolidation over the past right. you know how many years you want to pull how do you think through the dichotomy of settled industries or consolidation in industries it's still producing poor shareholder returns um and it seems like when Buffett has gotten caught in 
an industry, I mean, like mm-hmm. airlines, for example, right. it seems like the industry has consolidated and he is still not done too well, I think, in the few different times that he's invested in airlines. Right. Well, this is like Porter's Five Forces stuff. Um, I think they all, a lot of times investors focus on rivalry, which is one of the forces that he talks about. That's all they talk about. Yeah. Uh, rivalry among the firms. Right. Which is only one's factor, not necessarily the biggest factor at all. Um, the other is how much power you have over labor, how much power you have with government sometimes, how much power you have with suppliers and how much power you have with customers, um, as well as rivalry. Rivalry is only one part of that. And so, like, for instance, in the supermarket stuff, um, let, let's take, you know, um, brands, you know, like we talk about brands like Kraft or any of those sorts of things. Um, uh, there's a lot of talk about, like, customer behavior and that they're switching away from these um, uh, these old brands that aren't healthy and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, that may be true, but a lot of it is just much greater consolidation in who they're selling through. So if you sell a lot through Amazon and Walmart, targeting those things instead of through a variety of much smaller um, chains of you know supermarkets, things like that, then I think you're going to have much worse results because your bargaining power is less. The most important thing of all this is bargaining power, you know. So, so what about bargaining power? Uh, so some in some industries, rivalry is very important, and it's the only real reason why there's a real, or I should, it's one of the reasons why there's a big problem. So from a product economics perspective, um, airlines and also uh, good airlines are very similar to chicken processing. Both of them have excellent product economics, but have severe issues with rivalry and cycles. So if they were able to collude, to work together, um, to set prices and to understand that no one would reduce prices, to agree together how they're going to deal with changes in input costs, changes in pricing, all those things and settle it among themselves as some sort of cartel, they would make a lot of money. If they can't do that overtly, then there are ways they can signal to each other with that. There's a way that they can do all sorts of things that may be legal, that may not be legal. Um, but absent that, they're going to have certain problems. Um, conversely, there are other industries where it's a lot, um, more, the product economics are a lot more difficult because for a variety of reasons, but some of it is just, you're providing very poor, um, value to your customer. Obviously one of the bargaining power things is it's sort of like, like labor, right? So we're talking about, uh, wage, you know, inflation, all that, right? If you're a very productive employee, if your productivity is high, then you can bargain. You have a lot more room to bargain. Sure. So mm-hmm. if we just take it in a macro sense, higher productivity is higher possibilities for higher wages. Um, doesn't mean you'll get it, but it means that that potential is there. Uh, so same sort of thing. If you're providing a ton of, of um, value to your customer, then you might have that bargaining power. That doesn't mean that you'll actually be a good business though, because those other forces that we're talking about could be a problem. So maybe you can provide a lot of value, but so can a lot of other entrants. So like when we're talking about mattresses, you can provide a lot of value in mattresses, you know, your sleep number, your Tempur-Pedic, those sorts of things. Um, That can be very valuable to your customer. But there are other issues of like, in that case, really threat of new entrants or threat of uh, substitute products in terms of different technologies um, that really keeps that industry in check somewhat though it's still a good industry. But I mean, those are the risks. Um, 
in other things, you something may be fairly expensive and it doesn't provide a lot of value to your um, customer. So like there was a um, net net. It was net net all the time. It was called Duckwall Alco. It ran Alco stores. Um, and I wasn't a big fan of it as a net net because it operated rural stores and it would take, basically it would have inventory that turned very slowly. So the issue is you're buying something that has a certain price for you that probably isn't much better than anyone else. So that's your supply. Mm -hmm. So you're buying something that's, you're not getting on better terms than Walmart in Dallas, but you're then gonna take that and go three hours out into a rural place and put it on the shelves there. Well, it's actually less valuable out there. There's less demand for it out there. The people have less income to buy it, all those things. So you're taking the same product and you're putting it in a worse place. You're providing less value to people that way. Um, now, a lot of people look at it and say, this is great. There's no competition. Sure, you're like yeah. the only thing here, which is absolutely true. But then how much bargaining power do you have with your customer? Because at some point, it doesn't make sense. You know, most things have substitutes or are in some sense discretionary. Almost everything has some discretionary aspect to it. So you'll buy more of it if it's at a really good price, convenient, all those things. And you'll buy less if it's really expensive. So as I say, in that example, was the product very expensive? Right. So the product is more expensive. So the product is, um, the issues that you have there is one, it can be more expensive, right? But the bigger one is if it's priced at the same level, right? It has to be priced much higher because your turns are much lower. So you're targeting returns on capital, not margins, right? So this is what we talk about with like supermarkets and what sort of um, uh, bargaining power with customers they have is that the best supermarkets are suburban, large suburban supermarkets, because they offer the best value for their customer. Now, there might be too much competition. It might not be a good business for these other reasons we're talking about, the, the threat of the substitutes, the new entrants, all mm -hmm. those sorts of things. But in terms of what you're providing for the quality for the customer, you should have a lot of bargaining power with them because you can offer a large store, fresh products, wide selection, and you can turn it so much that your margins can be low. You reverse that, have a small store in a rural place, the only way to make money is to have much higher gross margins. Mm -hmm. You have to have much higher margins. So your markups have to be higher to achieve the same returns on capital. As I say, so if you turn it over a lot, but the margins are low, you could still produce Right. A high return on capital. So that's the idea behind all these things, whether it's Costco, Amazon, that they think they can provide more um, value to customers and over time get more bargaining power out of this by having lower prices that stimulates more sales than lower prices because they increase the turns. Uh, but then you could have the problem of competition from uh, or threat of substitutes or the bargaining power of suppliers. Um, and all those factor in, as well as the issue of the rivalry. Um, which they kind of have here as a separated out from all the other forces. Mm -hmm. But it's because in theory, well, economists think of it this way. Economists think of it as sort of like um, the same factors are affecting, they tend to think this way, the same factors are affecting everyone who has the rivalry in the industry. And I think sometimes that's true. Sometimes it's not though, so you have to be careful. Um, so when we talk about things like airlines and stuff, for the most part, it's just a commodity that they are affected very much the same way. But for some industries, the you are you have somewhat different business models. And so the way you're affected is different. Using the supermarket example, uh, you're going to see a big difference between inventory issues and stuff at like your Kroger and those things and at Walmart and Target 
even like a Costco, because they sell food, but they also sell other things. And so their actual business model, although they are like listed as a competitor because you're both selling food against each other, is different because the basket's different in, in each case. And so the business model is different because they're affected differently by how much buying you are doing of non-food items that are um, more discretionary things. Uh, so, right, so they're affected somewhat when others aren't. You know, it's a different business model that way. So it, if you see a downturn in that, it affects things. You attract different kinds of customers, whatever. Um, the ones that I think when we do these sorts of theoretical things, they pick things like airlines uh, or like I said, with the chicken processing stuff, right? So those are kind of easy ones to do. It's very convenient for a theory for a model, um, but it may not be the best way to think about the industry. Uh, I think Porter's Five Forces are a good way to think about it no matter what, but I think you have to be careful because a lot of times the um, degree of similarity in things like the position of the firms is not as great as an economic theory. So there are, you don't really have exactly the same business model usually. You've written about before how you believe that companies don't steal profits from other companies. Companies steal profits from their suppliers. So we could talk about like right. bargaining power of suppliers. I mean, how do you typically think about that when you're looking and analyzing a company? So you talk about profit pool. I think it's a good way of thinking about it. So you can kind of think about it both ways. So if you want to be um, uh, cynical about it or whatever, like maybe that's the way to talk about it, is um, so the rivalry among the existing competitors is like a group of predators feeding on prey, right? So you have uh, the amount that you can get is based on what we said with the um, how much you have from uh, customers, which is how much you can take off of the customers. But relate to the fact of how much it ends up going to someone else, buyers and those sorts of, uh, so um, suppliers and those sorts of things. Um, and then you have the rivalry there, which is how much you're able to retain. Of it. So the fact that you can that you might be able that there's a certain pool available doesn't necessarily matter if you have uh, an overpopulation of predators versus the prey. And uh, I, that's how I would think about it. So it's it's both of those things. I mean, you can lose out to um, your suppliers. You can lose out uh, because they're able to to charge a lot. Um, but you can also lose out to customers because they're able to be in a strong bargaining position versus you. And then you also have the rivalry. In all these cases also, it does matter what the, um, this is another issue. In economic theory, they're going to say the bargaining power, they're just going to say bargaining power. In reality, bargaining power is just the potential. It doesn't mean that it's realized. It's very possible that someone has a lot of bargaining power and yet will not realize that bargaining power, take advantage of it, and so you can charge them quite a bit more or you can get a better price or different terms um, simply because they will not actually actually exercise that power. And that's pretty common. So as an example, like lots of people subscribe to newspapers and, and um, just even listening to this, you could probably call them up and threaten to cancel and get a better price. Sure, yeah. But you're probably not going to. Mm -hmm. um, it's like The Economist. I've subscribed to their thing and I forget how much I was paying, 50 or 60 bucks, something crazy like that. And then as soon as I threatened to cancel, I think they threw it off for 15 bucks or something. Right. And I'm like, wow, maybe <laughs> if it was 15 from the beginning, it would just be one of those sunk cost payments I just wouldn't even think about because you'd be less likely to cancel $15 subscription right. versus a $60 subscription that you don't right. may not use every single but day. But then it wouldn't make sense for them because then they'd be offering the 15 to everybody and not just the ones who want to cancel. Sure, yeah. 
you know? So if that was the average over all of it, that price wouldn't make sense for them, right? So they always want to segment things that way. And then how do you think about the other side of that coin? So Netflix, for example, mm-hmm. how much do they charge? I don't even know. 15 bucks, 16 bucks? Yeah, something like that. The, Less like than the top thing, yeah. How much do you think they could get out of people? Well, that, which they don't. It's an interesting question. I Like how much would you pay a month for a Netflix subscription? So I, I know you do it a little bit differently. I don't really have Netflix. Yeah. I, I sign up for Netflix when I want to see something yeah. and then I cancel afterward. <laughs> uh, that's not a price issue. I'd be happy to pay whatever price and stuff. I just don't want access to it. I mean, it's a bunch of stuff that would just be there trying to get you to watch it. You know, I'm, I'm not really interested in it. The in amount of serial killer documentaries I've watched because of Netflix <laughs> is just off the charts. Uh, so, yeah, it's a big thing about segmenting, right? So some, they're probably, Netflix might be able to get a lot more people if it had a free version, mm-hmm. right? On the other hand, it might be able to charge some people a lot more. But how do you segment those people out? They try to do it through how many different um, devices you're using, quality of the video you're watching. Those are pretty hard ways to do it versus other ways of segmenting out. And now they're talking about doing, uh, creating an ad model. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which will be interesting. Uh, the potential could be there for them to make a lot of money. It'll change some things, but definitely the potential's there. Because they've already kind of gone in that direction in terms of how they, well, uh, they've put on a lot of content and stuff that makes more sense from an ad-supported basis than what they had before. So, you know, with their Stranger Things and um, stuff like that, it, uh, uh, a pay model makes a lot of sense, right? But they've just loaded up on so much uh, more disposable content that a that a ad model makes more mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. For that kind of stuff. So do you think it's harder to find companies that operate in settled industries in micro caps? Well, no, not necessarily. But I think... And if they are settled, is it because they're in the declining phase of the life cycle chart? (laughs) I don't believe in the life cycle thing. Okay. Yeah. What would you change about it? What do you think about it? Uh, well, I don't believe in the idea that there's a falling part, mm-hmm. a decline. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think there's any evidence for that. There, there's no sense in which uh, there's mortality for industries or for companies the same way that there is for people. Um, you know, saying that would be like the life cycle of a country. Maybe we should like cut it off like right <laughs> here, right? Yeah, but it's also the, the, the rise sometimes can be very rapid and sometimes it can be very slow over a long period of time. Uh, so, you know, like, um, I mean, if we're taking so things that have been, I mean, uh, you could take movies, you could take cars. Um, those things had very dramatic increases in the United States that lasted for a couple of decades. I mean, they were super fast growth for a short period of time. And they had a few uh, decades and then half their lifetime for now has been fairly heavily settled. Um there's some additional competition for some things, but compared to what it was like in the beginning, the second half of the cycle has been very settled and very um, slow, you know, slower, no growth or wherever you want to put it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But do you think it's harder to find that in microcaps? Bring it back to that question. Um, I think the difference is normally, not necessarily in the last few years, but the last 10 years or so. But normally, uh, for a company to be a not a microcap to be large, it does have to have a history of making a lot of profits. And if you've had a history of making a lot of profits and retaining them, that's how you get a high market cap. 
um, then you've usually had a history of being a good business sometime in the past. Because you either have to have survived for a really long time or you have to have high returns on capital. You could be around forever and have low returns on capital, right? Um, or you could have really high returns on capital and not have been around for very long. But if you're a very big company, there's no doubt that very big companies have a higher quality past than very small companies generally. They may not have a higher quality future, but you don't get to be the size of um, uh, you know, Amazon or whatever unless you made money in the past. So all those companies had to have had a good past Whereas with microcaps, you have plenty of companies that haven't had a good past. Um, but the complaint that we get for most of the kind of microcaps that we look at is that the industries aren't very fast growing or that the company itself is not very fast growing. So if it has high profitability and stuff, but it's still microcap, the argument is that the reason for that is that the industry is not fast enough growing. And what are your thoughts on that? I think that's potentially true, yeah. Yeah. I think that only, I mean... The most value, certainly on a dollar basis and, and also pretty good value on a, on a compound growth basis, is created by companies that have happen to have very, very large markets. So it's more of a winner-takes-all situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if they get a very large market, then they end up making a lot of money in the industry and it's still a good business. Um, but I think just because you have a very large market or you grow a lot doesn't necessarily determine whether it's particularly good business or not. So, you know, um, over-the-counter markets might be a pretty good business. Um, Uber and Lyft might not be. But Uber and Lyft might be if they are able to get to a point where they're the only, the, the only one left. I mean, exchange isn't a very good business if there's multiple exchanges yeah, competing sure. with each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it, I think that's just the issue of, of getting rid of the competition, getting to a situation where um, – uh, you have the ability to use your bargaining power. Is there any sort of characteristics that you could see from the numbers that are a tell to you that the industry is an industry that you would be interested in? Like when you're looking at the competition and reading different 10Ks within the industry and stuff, like is there anything like low margin variability, you know, return on invested capital numbers, sure. stability? I mean, is there anything that you typically look for? So if you look at the overall industry, the most important thing is low asset growth. Um, high asset growth would be, from a statistical perspective, the biggest concern. Um, now, things like margins, uh, that's going to matter. You can do that, but you're going to have to look at a bunch of different companies in the same industry to get that information. Because normally, if you get that information from one company, it just tells you about their position in the industry. So like Costco might have very low operating margin variability. Um but that doesn't mean that their industry is necessarily extremely settled. It may just mean that uh, their position is very, very strong, mm-hmm. right? So if you don't look at like a very marginal insurance company, you look at the strongest insurance company, the cost leader, um, the low cost leader might look like they have pretty stable margins. But if you look at a variety of them, then you have a better idea. Yeah. Would you consider core banking to be a subtle industry? So yes. if you look at this chart, Fiserv, based on market share, has 40%. Of the market, Jack Henry, 18%, FIS, uh, what is that, Fidelity International Services, 16%, other, 14%, and then CSI, which we've talked about on the podcast, 8%. Mm -hmm. Would you want to learn about what's in that other bucket, for example? Like if there's, I don't know, 100 different companies in that other bucket that have 14% of the market share? I mean, how would you typically think about this if you were to be looking at um, the bank core market 
Well, first of all, I'm not sure that market share matters as much as people think. Um, so it's great. So why is that? Let's go through that. Oh, I don't think it matters that much in this industry, for instance. We don't have much evidence that it matters in terms of their returns. Uh, the, the best returns in terms of earnings per share and stuff like that, I think, would be CSI and Jack Henry. Um, now, that could be corporate decisions and stuff. Uh, that isn't as much the competitive situation. Um, the other issue is that the market share probably matters more if you're like market share would matter a lot if you're producing a commodity product against each other uh, with no lasting relationships, right? So even something like airlines, there's somewhat is lasting relationships and there's some barriers. But if we did something that was purely, you know, um, the, what's the market share of different companies producing? Um, uh, some electronic part or something, you know. So you're saying like if they don't have like a contract with the customer? I think it matters a lot. If, well. <sighs> when you say lasting relationships, what does that mean? I don't think contracts are important. Um, I'm skeptical of the ability of using legal things to have any effect on something that's other than enshrining something that's already an economic uh, relationship. And I think the best, most lasting um business relationships come with almost no contract or the ability to terminate by anyone almost immediately. Um, there aren't really extensive contracts keeping people tied to accountants and lawyers and ad agencies and all sorts of different things, and yet they have some of the best uh, retention stuff. There's nothing keeping you at your bank, and yet, you know, if you think of most of the relationships that you have that way, um, and yet you might have a pretty extensive relationship in terms of a contract thing with a landlord or something, but that doesn't mean that you'll stay renting at the same place longer than you will in the relationship with your bank or something like that. Um, so I think the market share can matter in some situations. It's hard. It's really hard to say. There's a lot of study on market share stuff. I, I think one of the problems is that if you have a better business model, you're likely to end up with higher market share. And so you got trying to settle uh, to tease that out statistically to judge whether companies with higher market share actually are more profitable is hard to tell. Um, I think in, in industries like this, I'm, I'm skeptical that market share would matter. Okay, so what would you think matters? The, re the reason why I'm skeptical is how do you take a customer from someone else, right? So as an example, does market share matter in operating systems or browsers or, yeah, it matters completely. Search engines, yeah. All these things that matters a great deal. But we understand in common sense why it matters a lot. Because let's say browsers, right? If you have a browser that ends up where it becomes a less popular browser, it's not going to be supported. You go to different websites, they'll tell you to go pick another browser. Sure. You know? yeah. So mm -hmm. it, we understand why it's all going to settle out with one with uh, all the companies using the same, uh, all, the, all the customers using the same company. Uh, but in other industries like ad agencies and stuff, you know, there wouldn't be a reason why they should all uh, use the same uh, company. And in fact, there'd be some reasons why you would never end up with one provider. So, you know, you tend to an oligopoly of some sort. Um, so I think just because of the lasting relationships that they have. Um, we know even from the filings on uh, CSI that a lot of the customers they lose are through acquisition. Um, so uh, to uh, banks merge and they choose one of the systems they, they use, you know, they have to switch everything to be on the same system. And so they pick one and usually it'd be the bigger company. Um, and so that was probably a customer of someone else. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the same thing would happen with it. 
exactly the same thing happens with ad agencies, accounting firms, mm -hmm. law firms. You're not going to say, well, let's use both of them. Yeah. You'll pick one or the other now. It's part of the in-house process of acquiring another business. Yeah, if you have two investment banks and they've always used the two companies and they've always used the same investment banks, but they're two different investment banks. Mm -hmm. If they merge, there's only one, there's only business for one left. Um, so that, but um, the big things would be how fast market share changes, obviously. And then also relative market share. I think relative market share is fairly important. I don't know the absolute market share is that important. Okay, so relative market share. Let's go through that. So in this case, you can see that uh, Pfizer has much larger market share, about double uh, than the other companies. Um, that's kind of assuming that they're all in the same exact segment of the same market, which maybe isn't exactly true. Um, and then the others are on much more um, uniform sizes. Um, there might be a size that is too small to be below, but the evidence is that in this industry, that's not true. They've all made money for a very long time, for decades. So it's not something like you have to get to a certain scale to be able to be viable. I think that's usually the most important thing. I, I've talked about that before, but the thing you don't want in an industry is to have a large um, habitable zone. You don't want it to be possible for, for companies to enter and produce enough earnings to reinvest to stay in the business. You wanna make sure that there's significant earn of resources for anyone entering the industry and then the, uh, or not of a sufficient size. And so generally the way in which you make an industry better for you is to keep upping the ante in terms of how much uh, is required to get to the size, to get to the level of, um, of experience of whatever, to be able to uh, make a success of it. So you want to make sure if you're Netflix that the threshold for making money in your industry is now a lot higher than when you first turned a profit. So larger upfront costs. Yeah. So like, would you consider like cruise lines, airlines? I mean, what type of yeah. companies would you put in that bucket? Mm -hmm. So they're, those are undeniably much harder to enter now than they used to be. Um, is that a natural progression of a maturing industry? Or is that more so just the line of business that they're in? Because, I mean, a cruise ship costs a billion dollars and airplane costs a fleet, costs a ton of money as uh, well. It's interesting. It's somewhat the result. So one is economies of scale and network effects are part of it. Um, the other one is a choice by the companies involved of what they choose to pursue. So if you choose to pursue a strategy that focuses on growth and lowering your um, unit costs and things like that, then you're going to make it harder to enter the industry on the same terms that others did. Um, so that makes it more and more difficult. It's not necessarily that tied to technology. For instance, you see it with cruise ships, um, with cruise lines, uh, but you also see it in things like, um, you know, with with um, Western Union and, and MoneyGram and stuff with, with um, money transfer things. You see it with payment processing things. So those are tech things. But then there's also things that aren't technology-based, and you see the same pattern. It, I, a lot of those are network, so it has something to do with that fact. Um, there are other industries where I, that's probably not possible. So I guess like, um, well, engineering would be a good example, but also the other service things we talked about, about lawyers and accountants and, and ad agencies. Um, for a large part of their business, you can't really lower the costs um, because they're project stuff. Um, so I take the ad agencies, it might be possible to raise the threshold in terms of, um, of how hard it is to get into the business and to make money in terms of the, um, media buying side of it, but on the creative side, it's not really possible. So you're in the same position as like an engineering firm. You can't really 
um, reduce, uh, make it as, you can't really make it more difficult to start an engineering firm as you can for like a manufacturing thing. Because manufacturing thing, you can lower your, your costs over time. Um, and so lowering those costs make it harder for others to enter the industry unless there's other factors that would make it possible for them to um, enter. The, the difficult thing though is sometimes I, so I think sometimes the barriers to entry can be lowered in an industry. So like, I'm not sure that the barriers to entry in some online um, consumer technology things have been uh, raised. I'm kind of, I kind of feel like they've been lowered. And I mentioned this when I read books about TikTok and Instagram and Facebook and Snap and Twitter and all those things. Uh, I think that the existence of networks in which people share a lot of information actually has made it easier to um, get out the word about something else, even if that something else turns out to eventually be a competitor of the network on which it first appears. So I guess a real world example could be learning about TikTok on Twitter yeah. And then TikTok becomes a huge competitor to Twitter, which right. maybe people are saying they're not competitors, but that's basically what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the best, you know, as opposed to this might not be obvious, but like that as the Internet exists in the 1990s, let's say before, especially before everyone was using Google, um, it was much harder for a site to become extremely popular um, across all sorts of groups and to spread a, as quickly without a lot of time being involved in that. Um, there might be significant upfront costs still, but I think the amount of time at which uh, something can go to become very popular might be less. So that can make things difficult. Um, and again, that's like, a, I don't know exactly what that is, but that's that's an industry where I do worry that it might not be as safe as like when we talked about having a license to be one of the big... Um, network broadcastings in the u.s or something so like having being the abc affiliate in cleveland is that a better more reliable business than being you know uh facebook or snap or one of those things because you know that there's a limit to how many licenses are going to be given out and, and all those sorts of things and and so um the total number of competitors is kept lower how often do you think about what you would consider to be like rationality in the industries and amongst competitors uh a lot so like what would you consider to be an industry that is rational like with prices and stuff like that i mean i hate to always bring it back to like coca-cola and pepsi but is that what you kind of would look for where it's like well they're not going to price each other to death the easiest to compete yeah the easiest is if the planning is very short term it's easier to adjust for that. Anything with very long-term planning can easily fall into something that becomes hard to um, know the right decision. And that becomes even more true now that we have more inflation and stuff. But long-term planning becomes very difficult to do in, um, because of changes in technology, changes in your industry, um, and then changes you know, with um, other factors like um, inflation and, and uh, loss and things like that. So anything that you have relatively non-specialized forms of capital that can be converted back into cash very quickly and that you can adjust on a short cycle. So um, asset light uh, and uh, a product that is um, less discretionary. Um, where I, I don't know if I like the 
term discretionary exactly because well obviously i mean everything's discretionary at um but that you're less likely to cut back on um but things that are more subject to a lot of planning both by the customer and by you are a much bigger uh issue so like for instance cruise lines the planning part is very difficult it's really difficult because you don't when you're building a ship you don't necessarily know um you don't know what gas prices are going to be in the future you don't know what the prices that you can charge your customers are going to be um you try to know because the industry is pretty small what the fleet growth of the others and is going to be so the capacity things and you may not even be 100 percent sure about things like you don't pay taxes now will you pay them in the future and all those things come in in a big way to determine what your returns on capital are but that's because you're making a commitment that you can't reverse you're turning into a ship that can't be turned back into cash immediately um if you're a firm that doesn't really have assets that have a long life then you're a lot better off that way so the hardest thing to be rational about and to be correct about in the long term is anything which involves a lot of um uh investment in long-term assets that are specialized how do you typically think about technological disruption so you could think about like the banking industry you could think about um other parts of the market movie theaters mm -hmm. where okay you had movie theaters but now the uh narrative is shifting to towards streaming even if you don't exactly believe that how do you typically think about that um same thing about like how much harm it can do to companies so as an example you know like say the streaming thing is streaming in competition with movies because they're both movies or are they in competition with all the ways that you can use your time during the day um you know how much harm does it actually do to movie theaters and that experience is that different um than other forms of the then competition with other things that you might be doing so uh the same idea in terms of how much damage can be done mm -hmm. i don't i probably group things together less than other people do in terms of like an industry and assuming that everyone in that it affects an industry that there's been some change in technology um and see how much i think it really affects that particular company so I think that streaming, for instance, is relatively unimportant to uh, competition with movies. I don't think that they're particularly close substitutes. Mm -hmm. um, people used to do lots of other things, and it may compete more with those things than it does with going out to the movies. Do you think uh, banking is a settled industry? Uh, yes, I do think it's a very settled industry, yeah. How would you think about like consolidation in banking? I mean, so we have Bancor market share right here. You had spoken about how the only time companies typically switch from like a CSI to a Jack Henry or a Fiserv is when they get acquired, as is the case with other businesses when they get acquired, mm -hmm. they centralize things. Um, you know, you could look at banking and be like, okay, there's still a bazillion different banks out there. I mean, how do you typically think about um, that i mean you would consider it a settled industry because they compete in certain markets is that more of a regional thing things a sell industry because you're adding almost no new customers yeah i don't think it'd be a settled industry if suddenly there was a lot of people who've never used a bank before and are now using a bank but i think that the actual turnover in terms of uh clients of banks people institutions uh companies is very small and the change in the business model is not very, you know, the in terms of what products are being offered and stuff isn't very different. So the fact that it changes a ton of things about how they do things, I don't know that that matters as much. I think there's, you know, 
we always talk about technology things. I think technology things matter a lot if the technology part of it is important to the customer. There's some very high-tech companies where I don't think it's very important that, that we don't think of them as tech companies because the customer doesn't see any of that tech and doesn't take it into account when making decisions, you know? Um, so is Netflix a tech company? Is a semiconductor company a tech company? Um, I don't know that there's less technology going into Netflix than there is into a semiconductor company, but uh, there's way less concern from the customer about technology when thinking about Netflix. It's not something they think about. So what it's doing is not important to them. So I, I don't think that the fact that there's going to be a lot of technology that's going to change how things are run inside a business necessarily changes a lot of the um, dynamics with customers and suppliers and all those sorts of things. Um, it can change costs and it can change a lot of other things inside the company, sure. What are some ways that you would go about, though, like to learn about like um, the industry, rationality, competition, if it's what you would consider to be a settled industry, take us through that process, like when you're researching a new industry or a new company. Well, the first one is to see how old the companies are in it, um, see how much wealth has been created. If there's a lot of people who have made a fortune in the industry, you know, made some wealth in it, um, or if that's not the case, uh, that is one of the first things to do. Uh, if there's a lot of new companies entering, it's a possible thing to look at too. Um, but overall, I'd say a lot of it is the history of the industry, but then you spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, the, the situation with customers and, and what the actual decisions are about the product. Um, I say I do a lot more than the people think, and that has a much bigger influence on investment decisions. Than people might think a lot less of it is looking at the past data and looking at the top level data and thinking about it from actually what the customer decision process is, how they make it, those sorts of things. So take us through that process. Is it like they compete on price alone or they choose because of price? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Just asking someone who, you know, so. Like uh, why do customers choose you over company X? Oh, so say it was core processing things. You'd say, okay, so who is your core processor? Okay, you know, um, can you name the other ones? Who else have you thought about? Um, how long? Have you been a customer? What do they do for you? Has that expanded or contracted over time? Um, what's most important to you? Why would you want to change? Um, what would happen if they raise prices by a certain amount? What would happen if they cut prices by a certain amount? Things like that. What if their answer is customer service? Our customer service is better than the rest of the industry. Oh, no, don't ask the company. Okay. They always say that. That's, that's nonsense. Yeah. The, our uh -huh. customer service. Yeah. No, you ask the customer. I think of Michael Scott pitching their paper customers and how right. they put they called the like staples or one of the other paper companies and they were on hold and he was pitching them the whole time and basically made a pitch for their customer services better than the big box retailers or other paper companies mm -hmm. yeah so because i feel like that's like a default that most companies go to oh, our, our people are our most important asset our customer yeah. service yeah mm -hmm. yeah um now if they're using customer service in their advertising that's important because then what they're trying to do is get people to select who are people who prefer paying for a customer service. So that's very significant. But if they're telling it to investors, it's not that important. Like, for instance, Frost. Frost uses that in their advertising. That's all their advertising is. Basically, we're in Texas and we uh, have humans that interact with you. They just like nothing else they're advertising. So the result of that is you're probably not going to get people who are looking for the highest rate. Whereas if you say... Look at our jumbo, <laughs> whatever rates that are higher than this thing, then you're going to get a different kind of customer. So I think that does matter. 
Um, but often the communication to investors and the communication to employees and the communication to customers is not as consistent as that. But yeah, if you're trying to attract a certain kind of customer, then that makes, uh, then that is something that I would care a lot about. And what customers do you not want? I mean, that's always an important question to ask companies, you know. Take us through the, th the thought process of Breeze Eastern when you wrote sure. that, that so report. Like that's that's a, good, a great example. That's, yeah, that's a good example. So um, the question would be just asking customers. So the main things were um, how difficult is it to switch from using one to the other? And the answer was it's very, very easy um, technically. I was concerned that it might be technically difficult, and that was the reason. But it was very simple to do. Um, so people were not changing, even though technically it was very easy to do. Um, Another one was, do you call them? Do they call you? You know, who's your contact at the company? Do you call them? Do they call you? Um, what happens? How long do you wait? Uh, and um, why would you want to change from the company to a different, um, uh, to a competitor? And of course, one of the most important ones is, you know, who is their competitor? Who's your other choice? So in that one, a fairly decent number were somewhat aware that there was a competitor, sort of. Um, a lot were not, I would say. And even those that knew that there was another competitor were confused about the competitor, didn't quite know the name of the competitor, thought the competitor was a little different than it was, but like vaguely had the idea there was another company out there. So that's useful when you have that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you said easy for the customer to switch. Do you think it's better to have it be easy for the customer to switch and they don't? Or, you know, maybe it's longer term, harder for them to switch and... The most important thing by far, the best thing, is that you never enter search mode. So, you know, people... So what does that mean, search mode? When you're actively considering alternatives. Got it, okay. Right? So that's the issue now when we have, like, inflation. And, you know, um, if, if you don't have a lot of inflation, then you don't do that. You don't normally think, oh, should I switch from beef to chicken? But if you normally buy something and the price of that goes up then even if the price of something else did not went up by just as much, you're actually going to start to think about, well, let me compare them and think about it. But as long as you could keep the price so it's not really going up in a way that they notice at all, then they won't think about search. Uh, then they won't go into search mode. That's the most important thing is not to let your customers think actively about searching for alternatives. You know, And that's generally why things like when I talk about ad agencies, but all the professional service things, your lawyers, your accountants, all that. But even people cutting your hair and stuff. Um, the main advantage that they have is that you're not actively thinking about alternatives. Of course, they don't have much, they often have no advantage when you first choose them. None. But once you have chosen them, you do have an advantage over others in that they're less likely to consider switching. So high switching costs, people always talk about that. I mean, I think that certainly that has a, a, a use. But better than high switching costs is low um, consideration of switching. So just not thinking about switching. Um, the ones that are, that's why certain other industries are, can be difficult is um, electronics, appliances, uh, large appliances, cars. Um, people try to be very educated on it. And that you don't really want that. You don't want people to be thinking a lot about what's the best choice to make. Um, and carefully comparing on each uh, spec and each price. Usually it's better to have something that, the best thing is to have some sort of advantage that's not totally quantifiable. Um, that would be the big advantage um, to have. Because if you have a quantifiable advantage, that's somewhat risky. I've always talked about that. Um, 
I mean, it's it's good, it's fine, but you know, if you're Costco or something and you have a quantifiable advantage in terms of cost, that's fine as long as your organization is able to completely succeed on that over and over again and can demonstrate that. But if anything changes in that way, then you have nothing. If it's not quantifiable, is that could that mean that that company has more brand loyalty? Yes. So, yeah. like, let's say Apple versus PC or Windows. Um. Well, I think the issue with Apple and Windows is I th I think uh, in both those cases it's uh, familiarity with the product not wanting to switch um, is a major one. What I'd say with something that's not quantifiable is more like um, uh, A one steak sauce, right? Good steak sauce. Um, is it the best? Is it the worst? Whatever. Uh, what exactly is a steak sauce? It defines the category by you deciding that if that's what you have, that's what it should taste like. Um, so that's the advantage. Uh, I, I would rather invest in a company that was, um, I mean, I would rather have, a, I would rather own a brand like that than say own a brand that can be put in. So like wine is, should theoretically be the same sort of thing, but I would worry because you can actually have people say, okay, but where's it from, right? What grape, what? what the more year? that they know those things, the more that you can then compare and then it is a quantifiable comparison. It's better to not know any of those things. It's good that no, you know, whatever, people can't tell what flavors are in Coke or what A1 really is or something. Um, that's a benefit. Then if you can compare it to something else and how much does that exactly cost? So if you're in a category, that's all your own that way. Um, you know, and there's lots of examples of that. The one that I think they gets mentioned a lot in like um, um, microeconomic theory things and stuff would be like WD-40. I was just going to bring up WD-40 yeah. and ask you about yeah. it. Yeah. But, um, or baking soda falls under the same sort of category. It, it doesn't even, you don't even know what you're going to use it for, which is a big advantage, right? You don't know what you're going to use it for. You have no idea how much gets used. If I ask you how, what is your consumption per month? Yeah, you're like, I don't know. What is your consumption per year? Does the thing you bought, is it going to last five months or five years? You know, I can't um, even name a competitor to a WD-40. Just WD-40. Mm -hmm. Give me some WD-40. So, I, you know, those are big advantages that you can have. But you already have to be in a strong position. I don't have a recipe. Part of the problem is all these things that we're talking about as an investor is just a recipe for how to find something that's successful and buy into that and see how um, likely it is to be sustained. But it's totally a fluke. We can't explain why it got big in the first place. Why it and not something else. There are always stories after the fact about trying to explain why one thing became very successful and another didn't. Um, you know, so is it a, so like, is it a better brand than something else, you know? Um, the brand thing's confusing because I think a lot of times when people talk about brand, they talk about positioning. And I think that's a, I think positioning is very important, but I think that's mainly the thing that people think of when they think about brand. And I don't think that's necessarily that helpful. So um, positioning being like, okay, so they compare, um, uh, they compare uh, Mercedes to Toyota or whatever. It's just an idea about what the price is supposed to be and what it means in some ways. Um, it, it, isn't even an associate it's slight maybe association differences between them in terms of what it means um so maybe someone buying a toyota is more into reliability of it i don't you know that's a possibility but that isn't as useful from a brand perspective as um 
like the ability to recall one company's brand and not to recall others in it, you know? Um, so like, what is it, you know, when I was talking about Western Union or something, you go to some country where they send money from into the U.S. and say, you know, um, the first question would be, what, how would you send money to the U.S.? What would you use, you know? And if they can come up on their own without being uh, prompted uh, with Western Union, that's helpful. Well, what else could you use, you know? And then prompted ones, do you recognize the name of this other company? Um, those kinds of brand awareness is more useful probably than anything else about specific associations with the brand. But being aware of one alternative and not aware of the other. Because that helps with the search mode thing I was talking about. Why do you like regional businesses? Is it because they could operate in an industry that's potentially growing fast or a large industry, but it puts itself in its own category because it competes regionally? I mean, what are your thoughts typically on that? Well, I think most advantages are local advantages. There are, with the internet and stuff, some big giant advantages, but they're pretty rare. So, I mean, there's some of them now, but, but generally advantages are pretty local. Okay, so what does local advantages mean? Well, we like we talked about banks. People always talk about consolidation when banks get as big as possible and stuff. There's not a ton of evidence that getting to be huge is a lot more efficient for a bank. Mm -hmm. I don't know that $200 billion asset bank compared to $20 billion asset bank is a lot more efficient efficient from like efficiency ratio or from like a return on capital perspective or return on equity mm -hmm. yeah both of those things and we don't know why because it might be other factors that there's economies and diseconomies that maybe there certain things are happening as they get bigger that isn't helping out um uh but you know so i, I don't think that like people talk about needing a lot of consolidation stuff i'm not sure that there's a need for a lot of consolidation generally you want a lot of consolidation to eliminate competition that's the main purpose of it. If there's disastrous competition, then there needs to be consolidation to wipe out those companies that are causing the problem that way, you know, um, and to control the supply better and have more rational um, capital allocation from the industry over time. And that could benefit certainly the people in the industry, but it could benefit everyone in some sense. Um, so like consolidation with big oil, does it help or hurt people, consumers? I guess it hurts them in that they have an overall average um, higher price that they're paying versus if they've never been a standard oil or something like that. On the other hand, um, they don't have as dramatic swings. So they're able to plan for the long term that way. Um, if that had never been consolidated that way, it might have been much more dramatic swings, which might have made planning hard. There would be, you know, very high prices sometimes and then very low prices other times. And you like settled industries to kind of wrap it, bring it all home is because instead of worrying about market share growth, and spending $100 for your customer acquisition costs that you know you only get you know, $80 from that customer over time, um, it becomes much more about capital allocation, slower asset growth, but profitable growth, and then doing different things with that capital. Um, I prefer settled industries because of the durability. I think the most important thing- Less competition. Yeah, the most important thing for, if you're gonna buy a common stock, the most important thing that should determine the- return that you get in that stock is basically that it has low credit risk and that it has durability that the the over the entire that the life of the investment producing cash and stuff will exceed any lifespan over which you'd own it or that anyone would be thinking about how long it should be in like a DCF. So basically it extends beyond the life of whatever DCF you're going to calculate and then it has like no risk of going to zero. Um, industries that are not settled have more possibility generally that their durability may not be very good. 
I know that a lot of people think that newer industries are going to outlast older industries. And that's kind of always said with the life cycle thing, but I don't really agree with that. I think the oldest industries um, would have the strongest evidence that they're going to continue to exist in the future. Whereas the youngest ones, it would depend. Some, I think we have some evidence, like not, you know, it's logic that we're using, but we think that they would last a really long time. Um, Other industries, we might not be as sure. Um, and then the credit risk thing is that, yeah, I, I do think that credit risk is, is generally much lower. Other things equal in terms of financial um, leverage and stuff like that in industries that are highly settled. Now, why is that? Less competition? Um, the industry, the future is a lot more certain. The, where you could feel like it's more certain that it's going to look a lot like the past. The truth this is. This whole Lindy. Yeah. The truth is we don't know in a lot of industries if any of the companies have settled on a business model that would be successful and durable. Um, Just because a lot of people have signed up for something uh, as customers doesn't mean that they're necessarily making enough money to the companies to reinvest and to provide the service over a long period of time. So it may not, we we have a proven business model, whereas it it may take a long time for a, a sort of a prototype of what a business model is supposed to look like in that industry. Uh, in other cases, that may not be proven that it works. And if we don't have proven business model that it works, then we don't know if those companies are going to last for the long term. Got it. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us on the Focus Compounding Podcast. If this is the first time you're joining us, uh, be sure to check out all the content that we put out on the internet. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Focus Compound. And if you're interested in learning more about our money management services, uh, reach out to me at andrew at focusedcompounding.com. I thank you so much for tuning in to both of us, and we will see you in the next podcast. Take care.